भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येक्षभ स्थिरंगगम सस्तनु व्यशेम देवहित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति न पूषा विश्ववेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्ष्यो अरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओ शांति स्टडिंग द मांडुक्य कारिका एंड वी आर एट द एंड ऑफ द लास्ट चैप्टर दैट इज द फोर्थ चैप्टर ऑलमोस्ट टुवर्ड्स द एंड वी वेर डूइंग द एटी सेकेंड वर्स आई थिंक एंड वॉट वॉज गोइंग ऑन वॉज Gaurapada had taken up this this question about why is it that if we are existence consciousness bliss already we are the absolute already why is it that we do not see this why is it that we are suffering why is there samsara at all why are we in trouble if we are already the absolute and the answer was because of our immersion in duality see the problem is not that the world appears to us not that the body mind appears to us that is not the problem if you will note that even for enlightened people people who are who have realized their real nature even for them the world appears and the body appears and the mind appears and that's why we are able to see them as enlightened beings because they have a body and mind and they have it in quotes from their perspective no but from our perspective yes so for them it's not a problem the world is uh, world appearance is not a problem body mind appearance is not a problem it is a problem when you take it to be the reality um reflect back upon the example of the um the dream which i told you about of being chased across the plains of africa by a lion now all of that is a problem only when i think it's real it felt real to me i am this person there is this terrible creature chasing me and here is a way of escape climb a tree all of it seemed real the body seemed real and not only that i felt i am it and the danger i was threatened by that creature and there was a course of action i could take there is a way out of this problem all of it false but the samsara was there because i took that to be the reality now after waking up when i look back upon it i remember it in all detail it was a very vivid dream i remember it in all detail but it's no longer threatening to me in fact it's it's nice it's like an aesthetic experience so what for us is real samsara the same thing appears for the enlightened person but for that enlightened person it's aesthetic experience it's like leela that the word leela what is samsara for us is leela for for an enlightened being the difference is they know the reality there and they have awakened to the reality in that samsara appearance which is the absolute we are seeing the samsara without appreciating the absolute which is right there the turiya which is right there and that's why we are in trouble so this experience of duality as reality i'll repeat that our experience of duality dvaita as reality that is at the root cause of samsara and why do we do that we do that because we do not know ourselves as thuriyam if we knew ourselves as thuriyam the appearance of duality would not be a problem to us mm-hmm. so that's what he was talking about and then he says that um, 
not only ordinary people like us, but highly trained philosophers. They also fall prey because of their in fact sophisticated dualistic philosophies. So, now 83rd verse is going to talk about that, is going to talk about um, the various philosophers, different schools, dualistic schools of philosophy and how they fall into the trap of samsara because of their, philo because of their uh, philosophical conceptions, dualistic philosophical conceptions. That is the 83rd verse. We use the on the computer version. Verse number 83. Asti nasti asti nasti ti nasti nasti ti vapuna chalasthiro bhaya bhavir avrinotyeshabalisha. The translation is by asserting that the self exists does not exist, exists and does not exist or again does not exist, does not exist. The non-discriminating man does certainly cover it up through ideas of changeability, unchangeability, both changeability and unchangeability and non-existent. Okay, what does that mean? In fact, if you, um, if you actually translate the 83rd verse literally, what it means, literally it means is, is not is and is not, is not, is not. <laughs> so, what does it mean? Uh, luckily, we have Shankaracharya, who in his commentary explains what each of these philosophical positions is. So, there are four philosophical positions which are taken up. They are all different kinds of philosophers who were um, prominent in ancient India. And Gaurapada atta attacks all of them. What are these positions? One is those who self, those who say that the self, the Atman, it exists. There is such a thing. Um, in what sense? That something other than the body and mind. Here is the body and the mind and apart from it, there is a separate reality called the self. Body, mind, Atma. These are the dualistic philosophers. And specifically here he, may, uh, he means the Nyaya Vaisheshika, the Nyayikas and Vaisheshikas, very ancient philosophers, um, Hindu philosophers. As against them comes the next nasty, does not exist. Now, you have to be careful here. Does not exist, what does it mean? It is not that he denies it completely. This second philosopher is saying that the first one, the way the first one puts it, that there is an Atman apart from body and mind. No, it is not like that. There is no separate thing called the Atman apart from body and mind. Um, who is this? So, Shankaracharya gives a clue. Uh, it is the Buddhist whom we have come across earlier, the Vigyanavadi Buddhist, who says that there is only a stream of consciousness and nothing else. Flicker, flickering consciousness, flashes of consciousness in which the world is experienced. External world, body, mind, all of them appear in that flash of consciousness. And that flash is for only for one instant arises, disappears, arises, disappears. So, this is the second one. More, um, I mean, Swami Vivekananda, for example, has pointed out, in fact, in his practical Vedanta lectures, Vedanta number 4, he talks about this debate. He says, along came the Buddhist who challenged the dualistic Hindus to say, where is this Atman you are talking about? 
I see only body, senses, mind, intellect. And in that some awareness is there. I admit there is consciousness, but that's in that mind only. And apart from this, a separate thing, substance, dravya. The Nayaikas, they say there is a thing called the Atman, a, a separate substance, reality. Where is this separate reality called Atman? And what use is uh, this separate reality called Atman? Uh, prove it. And so there ensued nearly a thousand years of debates between the Buddhists and the Hindus. The Hindus, the dualistic Hindus said that there is an immortal soul. Not the body, not the mind, an immortal soul is there, a changeless self. And one variety of the changeless self would be a changeless immortal God. So the existence of God and existence of soul, Ishwara and Atma, these two things were the, were the dualistic Hindus. And in fact, you will see all dualistic religions, whether the Christians, Muslims, uh, Jews, Zoroastrians, Jains, uh, all of them, they say that there is such a thing. There is uh, a, an, an independent soul. And the Buddhists attack this. Where is this independent soul? Uh, we see the body, which is a, a stream of changing stream of matter. We see the mind, which is a changing mental stream. And the Buddhists would say, the Vijnanavadi Buddhists would say, even the body and the external world cannot be proved because they are experienced only in the mind. Where is this external body and body? And let alone an external self also. So the, all I am trying to say is this, the second one, say, uh, when it says does not exist, it only means that he is attacking the first philosopher who says there exists separate Atma. The second philosopher comes and says no separate Atma. It is just flashes of consciousness. You make a mistake. Just as a series, you remember the firebrand which is whirled around and it looks like a circle or patterns emerge but there is only one point of fire. Similarly, this series of flashes of consciousness and people think there is a continuous self. An illusion of continuity is set up. And you, O oh dualistic Hindu, you think that there is a separate self. So this is a, this is a second position. Separate permanent self is not there. And centuries, so many books were written. So much debate went on between the du uh, dualistic Hindus and various schools of Buddhism um, on the existence of the Atman, on various issues, but the um, central issue was existence of an Atman, uh, existence of a self. Um, before we go on, how does Swami Vivekananda resolve this issue? If just touching upon, since I raised it in the fourth lecture on practical Vedanta. He says both of them are right and both of them are wrong. I mean, he doesn't say it this way, but this is what he means. What does he mean actually? What, what, does he, what is the solution he proposes? So Swamiji proposes this solution that it is true when the Buddhist says that there is no separate thing called a self. You see, when, um, the, when you say the rope is appearing as the snake, it's not that there is a separate thing called the snake which comes and sits on a rope. Not that there are two things called rope and snake. The rope itself is mistaken as the snake. So, um, it's not that there is a snake and in that there is a separate rope, uh, as if the way the dualistic Hindus were saying. So, Swami Vivekananda says, Buddhists are right there. Uh, there is no separate reality, a third thing, thing, important is thing, a thing called the Atman. Like you have a body, you have a heart and liver and all of that and there is one Atman, not like that. It's not there. Um, so, where the dualistic Hindus totally wrong that, uh, that there is no Atman? No, they are right. 
there is the atman so there is the atman but it's not a separate reality uh, apart from the body and mind the solution is in advaita vedanta which says it is the rope alone which is mistaken as the snake it is not that there is a snake in inside which there is a rope or there is a snake which has come and is sitting on the top of a rope not at all the rope alone is the reality it is mistaken as the snake similarly the atman alone is the reality it appears as body mind and universe so when you look into the real into the examine this uh, universe body and mind you will find the atman which is uh, what the advaitin says so that's the solution that's it there in the practical vedanta lectures now coming back third philosopher comes the third philosopher is um, the jaina philosopher who says it both exists and does not exist what did the first philosopher say the hindu dualist it exists atman exists second one that separate atman eternal you are talking about that one does not exist who is who says that the vigyanavadi buddhist for him there is only instants of consciousness third philosopher comes the jaina the jaina philosopher very ancient religion those who are from india you know about jainism so it is actually at least as ancient mahavira was old as an older contemporary of the buddha himself so 2500 years back but if you look at the the jinas who uh, you know he's only the 23rd of the tirthankaras so there are so many more if you take that uh, it goes back to prehistoric times anyway at least 2500 years or even more old and there the jainas have a vast and sophisticated philosophy in fact vedanta or the hindu philosophies have been studied lot translation has been done and they are being taught also buddhist philosophies have enjoyed a revival and lot of work has been done i have seen it in the universities here in the west beautiful books have been produced in english translated many many a lot of literature has come more than hindu philosophy in fact but jaina philosophy has been neglected so far there is a vast philosophical corpus of jain uh, in in uh, jainism a lot of it in sanskrit and in fact our um, uh, professor uh, jeffrey long who gave a couple of talks at the vedanta society all of all of you from vedanta society know him uh, elizabeth town college uh, uh, he is an expert on jainism and i think one talk he gave about jainism and vedanta here so jainism very sophisticated and here one one particular aspect is highlighted here the jaina philosopher comes and says wait a minute there's no need to fight it exists just like you hindus say and just like you buddhists say it does not exist how is that possible so here is something interesting the central teaching of jainism is non violence it's very very important and that pervades every aspect of jaina thought philosophy ritual practice religion so non violence so even the philosophy is non violent so what is a non violent philosophy you must not attack other philosophers so the approach should not be to attack and destroy other philosophers yeah, like they are doing the buddhists and hindus uh, or like gorapada is doing being extra clever making them fight against each other no the jaina says each philosopher is right from their own perspective they have got an angle of the truth the reason they say this is in jainism one of the central doctrines is ananta dharma ka vastu the reality has infinite aspects has infinite properties so from different aspects perspectives the truth will look different some of you may think this is similar to sri ramakrishna's teaching uh, 
as many paths, um, as many views, so many paths, uh, all religions are true. Similar and yet dissimilar, we will come to that later if anybody wants to know. But first of all, so what does this mean for Jayanda philosophy? They developed about 22 or 23 centuries ago, they developed what is today called multi-value logic. Multi-value logic is, the logic is generally true or false. So you have two values only, either a statement is true or it is false, true or false. This two-valued logic was known in India, in, um, in um, Hindu logic, in, in Buddhist logic, in um, uh, Greek logic, Aristotelian logic. So, two-valued logic. It is only in the 20th century that we have started developing multi-valued logics and they are useful in various fields. So, not just true and false, multi other values are also possible. What we are just beginning to think about in 20th century Jaina logicians, not one, many of them. Uh, first, they thought the earliest we can find in Jaina, Jaina logic, seven valued logic. They developed some 2200 years ago. And not just one, after that, many logicians they developed this system. It is called Saptabhanginaya. I was wondering if Dr. Long is here yet? No. Okay. Uh, so, Saptabhanginaya is because he is the expert. <laughs> I was thinking if he is here, he could have said something about it. Saptamanginaya is, what is it like? How can there be seven values? A statement is either true or false. What else is possible? So, it is like this. Um, there is, um, so seven, seven values would be, syat asti. In some way, it exists. Second value is, syat nasti. In some perspective or some way, it does not exist. What, the, for example, the self? You could take anything like self, God, uh, afterlife. So, in some perspective, it does not exist. Then, third one, syat asticha, syat nasticha. In some perspective, uh, it exists, and in some perspective, it does not exist together. That is the third value. Fourth value is syat avyaktam. So, it is, uh, it, it cannot be expressed. Abhyaktabhyam. So, it cannot be expressed. That is the fourth value. And the fifth one is um, Syat Asti Syat Abhyaktam. That it, um, it uh, in some perspective it exists and in, um, in some perspective it cannot be expressed. And the sixth value is Syat Nasti Syat Abhyaktam. So, it, in some perspective it does not exist and in some way it cannot be expressed. And the last seventh one, that seventh value would be that in some perspective it exists, in some perspective it does not exist, and in some perspective it cannot be expressed. So, seven values. Uh, it is actually a fascinating thing. And recently it has uh, attracted attention of computer scientists, uh, of philosophers also, and they are trying to put it in um, symbolic logic, in mathematical logic, these seven values, and trying to understand it. So, when they are faced with a situation where Hindus say that there is uh, a self, Atma, and the Buddhists say there is no self. The Jaina will come in and say, in some way there is a self, in some way there is no self. So, both of you should be happy. Usually, none of them will be happy, but anyway. Now, so uh, is it, um, so like, like Sri Ramakrishna's, all paths are true, somewhat like that and somewhat not like that. Somewhat not, somewhat not like that because, um, because um, 
Sri Ramakrishna says, all religions have, uh, are true and you can attain realization through all paths. But the Jaina philosopher would not say that. Says all religions are true in some aspect, they are not true in other aspects, but the ultimate reality can be attained through Jainism alone because Jainism alone sees this, uh, the, the, the infinite attributes or, or truths in all, all, uh, in all things. Okay. Who else is there? The fourth. The fourth one is again we have met this is the Shunyavadi who says nasty nasty. Not there, not there. Not there like the uh, Hindus say that there is some reality uh, called the self separate from body and mind. Not even like the other Buddhists say that not apart from body and mind and there is this consciousness flashes. Uh, not even that. So, in no respect does a self exist, in no respect and Jaina is automatically refuted because neither exists is true nor does not exist is true. So, in all respects there is no self, nasty, nasty means does not exist, does not exist. The first option, second option, they do not exist. Who says this? The Buddhist nihilist and um, so that is it. Now, you will see the verse, second line it says, they have different they have different um, characterizations. Chala, sthira, ubhaya, abhava. Chala means uh, changing, dynamic. According to the Hindu philosopher, the Nyaya Vaisheshika, uh, the Atman is also, the self is also the experiencer and the agent, Karta Bhokta. Karta Bhokta, the doer of deeds and the, uh, the experiencer of the results of the deeds, enjoyer and sufferer, karta bhokta. You might ask how is this different from what we are studying? Very different because um, um, the Turiya is neither the doer nor the sufferer. It is the witness, it is what makes the whole drama possible, it is like the screen of the movie. So, but the Nyaya Vaisheshika says, no, 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 the self is the doer and the uh, experiencer uh, of the results of karma, um, chala, it, and it is the one which transmigrates from body to body, from lifetime to lifetime, and there are many selves, there are many selves, according to Nyaya Vaisheshika. Then, sthira, according to the, the Vigyanavadi Buddhist, it is still, still means in what sense? If it is a flash of consciousness, then it does not come and go anywhere. It just arises, illumines and disappears. So, the, each instant is thira, that is static. But of course, there is a changing stream of consciousness, that is there. So, sthira means that one flash of consciousness, um, which, which is there for one moment only. So, there is no possibility of change in it. I think it is a bit of a convoluted way of trying to explain the word sthira there, but what can you do? That is the, the word Godapada uses. Then the third one, ubhaya, both moving and non-moving. So that is the jaina again. According to the jainas, this, uh, the self, the atman, it changes. Um, it, its innate powers express, it becomes more and more perfect as it goes through spiritual evolution. They talk about, I think, 15 stages of spiritual evolution and so on and so forth. Actually, it changes. And then finally, it reaches what is called Kevala Jnana. That means, the, um, the, the solitary 
omniscience let us say becomes perfect and uh, all knowing and then it does not change anymore. So, from the Jaina perspective, perspective in some way the as long as it is imperfect the self keeps changing and evolving spiritually and when it becomes perfect it does not change anymore. So, both are there change and non-change and according to the Shunyavadi very simple nothing is there abhava absence. So, these are all the four possibilities of these philosophers and by these conceptions according to Gaudapada these are misconceptions. So, by these conceptions or misconceptions they avrinoti they cover up they hide the Lord that is consciousness the true nature the Atman or Turiya is hidden by these um, misconceived philosophies. Who does this? Balishaha, these fools. Shankaracharya comments here that if highly trained philosophers, this is their, the, their condition, what to speak of others, everybody else, we are all, uh, of course, we have no idea about the real nature of the self. Those who are investigating the nature of the self, they have got multiple theories, none of them ultimately correct. Uh, so, these become obstructions in their path of seeing the reality. Remember, when I, when I read this, I get the vision of many, many um, Buddhist Lamas and Jaina monks and Nyaya Vaisheshika Pandits all protesting and get looking very annoyed and saying, Godapa, that is too, too cheap, this, you are moving too fast, uh, this, these are not cogent arguments you are giving. But Godapa is not actually refuting them. He is saying that these are all conceptions, these are all theories, these are all philosophies. None of them actually reveal the truth of the Turiya. Remember, what is the context here? Why are we caught up in samsara? So, ordinary people, everybody, we have the strong belief that what we are seeing is a separate reality and therefore, we are caught up in samsara. Dvaita, duality. Belief in the reality of duality. And these um, philosophers of different schools, they are also caught up, even though they, are, they investigate, even they think about it and they come up with these theories, they are also caught up in it. Uh, because these are just um, conceptual structures. You might say, so isn't Advaita also a conceptual structure? We will see later what it is. At this point, before I go on to the next one, um, yes, is there anybody who is asking a question? Oh, th thanks to Peter Fell. Uh, he as uh, Gaurapadi here has assumed the position of the Shunyavadi. Yeah, you reminded me, I, I would have been wrong to miss this. See, anybody who has read Madhyamaka, the Shunyavada of Nagarjuna, would immediately would say, hey, Gaurapadi is entirely borrowing Nagarjuna's system here. Because what is Nagarjuna's system? Nagarjuna's system, he says, uh, his method is called Chatushkoti, the tetralemma. The Chatushkoti is. Um, that suppose you ask what is shunya what is the void what are you what are you trying to say uh, is it something that exists he will say no it is not something that exists second so it does not exist shunya means nothing just like gaurapada is thinking that shunya means nothing nagarjuna says actually no it is not that it does not exist third one asticha nasticha so it exists and does not exist something like the jaina nagarjuna says no and the last one, which is where Gaudapada actually changes the dialectic. This is not the way Nagarjuna uses it. The last one is 
neither asti nor nasti. It is not that it exists and it is not that it does not exist. So, this is Nagarjuna's approach. Chatush, then what is Shunya? Chatush Koti Vinir Muktam Tattvam. The principle or the truth which is beyond these four alternatives. So, this whole language of Chatush Koti and the way it is phrased, uh, it is almost literally Nagarjuna who lived about 500-600 years before Gaudapada um, as far as we know. But what, why did I say, I will come to Peter just next uh, to see that if this is what he meant. But why did I say almost? Because when you come to the last, the fourth uh, you know, of the tetralemma, it is called the tetralemma, the fourth alternative, Nagarjuna would have said, na asti na nasti. It is not that it exists, not that it does not exist. And that Gaudapada has changed into nasti nasti, uh, which denies the first two alternatives. So, this is that is a, that is a modification of the Nagarjuna's uh, tetralemma. Uh, Peter, are you there? Peter, Peter Fell? Yes, yeah, I'm here. Uh, did, is this what you meant? Did you recognize the tetralemma? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I mean, I was going to say something longer, but I kind of did send it for that. So, yeah, I mean, the irony is that, um, that, that, that uh, uh, Gaudavada is essentially stepping in the shoes of the originator of the very dialectic to refute the originator of the dialectic by misrepresenting its, its position. Yes, I agree. Um, the dialectic is very clearly uh, borrowed from Nagarjuna. So, this is one, two points here. This is one reason why uh, scholars keep on saying that Gaudapada must be, have been a Buddhist. But he is not a Buddhist because of multiple, many, many reasons. He is not a Buddhist, but definitely he is work, working in a Buddhist milieu because the terminology is Buddhist, the logic is Buddhist and probably the opponents of his interlocutors are Buddhist. So, this is one point. And the second point I also agree when he says that the fourth opponent and he probably means the Shunyavadi, Nagarjuna's people which uh, Professor Patel in Harvard calls the emptiness people. So, he probably means them and Shankaracharya interprets it like that, that he means these people. If that is so, then it is an unfair way of uh, looking at uh, the Shunyavadi. And this is something that is common throughout the Advaitic tradition. I have found only a couple of times that a prominent Advaitin, ancient Advaitin has actually taken Nagarjuna to mean what Nagarjuna claims to mean. See, the unfairness of it lies here. The ancient Advaitins, Gaudapada and everybody else and Shankara also, they say that Shunyavada means nothing exists. They are claiming that they are nihilists. There is no reality. Asat, they are called Asadvadi. The, uh, the nature of the self and everything else is ultimately nothing. But Nagarjuna has himself, himself explicitly denied that. And in fact, the tetralemma, the second uh, alternative, denies this very thing. And uh, Nagarjuna in one of the karikas has clearly said, Navayam Asadvadi, that, that we are not uh, nihilists. Yeah, so I agree with you there. Uh, the one or two Advaitins, Sri Harsha, who wrote the Khandana Khandakadya, at the very beginning, he says, uh, we have no quarrel with the, the Madhyamakas, the Shunyavadins. Shankara himself, we will see at the very end of this Gaudapada Karika, um, Gaudapada says, 
naitat buddhena bhashitam these things have not been taught by the buddha what i've just told you now the question arises that if that's so then why did you mention it you don't uh, mention others you're just saying that this was not said by the buddha and shankara in his explanation this he says um alpa aparadha i think he uses the term the defect in buddhism is very small and uh, i heard about some of the last great buddhist philosophers at nalanda uh, shantarakshita and kamala shila and all. when they mention vedanta if i'm not wrong they use the same term that alpa aparadha there is only a small defect in vedanta otherwise it's the one which comes closest to us so yes yes thank you for raising that i thought i would say it uh, this is an important point the similarity to nagarjuna right here um shashank anybody else is asking questions yes maharaj i have been to uh, several buddhist temples and my question is what is the difference between us worshiping sri ramakrishna as god and buddhist worshiping buddha as god because they worship in my i i thought, thought that they were essentially worshiping the buddha as god there um first of all they wouldn't agree they wouldn't say that we have god a definition of god or ishvara would be Uh, the creator preserver and destroyer of this universe so the buddha is not as not such um and they would have different views of the buddha so the theravadin buddhists would say that we don't worship the buddha because the buddha is gone uh, he was an enlightened being and uh, he taught us this and we have to all become enlightened we don't become buddhas but we become arhats whereas somebody like the mahayanist in china or the tibetan uh, buddhists who have a very developed what is now called buddhology there is a term now buddhology but in nowhere would buddha be considered god for for them god does not exist ishvara the way we understand it but as far as practice goes in practical terms what you see and the mental attitude they have same ritual same chanting same puja same devotion Yeah. maybe more yes same prayers that my prayer should be fulfilled uh, not just monks and lamas uh, but also common people i would have visited chinese buddhist temples where they are not coming for philosophy or enlightenment or nirvana just let illness be cured let uh, the business succeed let my children be happy uh, and they light incense and give offering just like you would do for god yeah you, that that way you're uh, practically you're right swami vivekananda says this very well in each religion the whole the central principle is to catch hold of something which transcends samsara it could be god it could be a perfected being uh, like uh, the buddha for example uh, or the uh, the jina in jainism uh, or in advaita vedanta you yourself your real nature that would be the point of it all so but the principle is the same something that transcends samsara and it will become very god like though they may object to the term god just excuse me a minute let me shut up the fan yes uh who else is there uh, swami ji this is yours yes um 
you know, uh, in the past, a couple of times, you, you have recounted the story of the king. I think it was Janaka who awakens from a dream and wants to know, you know, what state is real? Is the dream real or is the waking state real? And um, so along that, those lines, my, my question is this. How can I tell at this very moment whether I'm dreaming or whether I'm awake. Am I dreaming that I'm in the Zoom session with you and everybody or, or am I awake? You can't. You cannot. That was precisely Gaudapada's um, um, uh, insight, which he uses to the hilt in the second chapter, Vaitatya Prakaranam. You see, what he does in the second chapter is he reduces our um, uh, waking state experience in status to our dream state experience. The clear difference we make between dreaming and waking in our understanding, he makes it fuzzy. He does his best to erase the differences between them because he operates on the principle that there is no way you can dif differentiate. And every objection that you have, that no, the waking is waking and dream is dream, because of this, each objection he takes up. In fact, Nikhilanandaji in his collection of the Upanishads, he has an appendix where he takes up 10 objections. This very question, how do I know that I am not dreaming right now? So, that some 10 objections he takes up and he shows how Gaudapada has shown that none of them stand. At the end of it, you will be left fe feeling very shaken. In fact, that's what um, Janaka was saying. How do I know this is true? And what was uh, Ashtavakra's answer? It is not true. Neither this only is true. true. Yeah, neither this, only you are true. The only thing that it shows is, Undeniably, consciousness is true. Otherwise, you wouldn't be seeing it. Therefore, Advaita says, do not give too much importance to the contents of your consciousness. Give importance to consciousness itself. What happens to us is, we become engrossed in the movie and the screen is forgotten. We are looking at what is appearing on the screen. Good and bad, pleasant and funny and tragic and we weave a samsara around it and we are caught. But the screen is there. Without it, no movie would be there. Similarly, you are the screen here in which the movie of your life of the universe is playing out. We are so engrossed with, uh, we are so engrossed with the world, with our personal story, that we forget that the world and our personal story appears and is possible only because of consciousness. Thank you. Bill is saying, if you can fly, you are dreaming. Two things, you, uh, in dreams when you fly, if you do fly, it does not seem, uh, you wouldn't even raise the question that it's weird that I'm flying. If you did, you'd probably wake up, come out of the dream and in waking too, we, we fly all the time in aeroplanes and <laughs> in gliders and whatnot and parachutes and so on and so forth. Yes. Yeah, uh, Swamiji said in Jainism, soul keeps on evolving till it becomes perfect. Yes. So, in recent times, Sri Aurobindo's philosophy of evolution might be uh, influenced by this same theory? I don't think so. I'm, I am no expert on Aurobindo. Um, so, he definitely talks about evolution, spiritual evolution. Yeah. But he is very Vedantic in that. But Vedantic, but uh, he differs from Shankara in many respects. And he makes it clear that he differs from Shankara in many respects. But I am no expert on Aurobindo. Ayan Maharaj is an expert on Aurobindo. And uh, there are a number of others. Our um, 
um, uh, Professor Endam Chakravarti is an expert in Aurobindo. Yes. Shall we proceed? Shashank? Yes, there's one more question. Mark. Yes. This thing about um, things both existing and not existing, would it, would it be fair to draw a comparison with physics where, you know, a photon can be a particle or a wave or uh, other examples where you have at a, at a certain fundamental level, there's only four forces and then at a slightly more manifest level, you have force and matter fields and then at a slightly more f manifest level, there's this thing called sequential spontaneous symmetry breaking where creation sort of emerges sequentially and becomes more and more concrete. And at a certain level, there are no atoms or molecules. At another level, there are. Yeah. And, um, and so in that sense, they both exist and don't exist. I think giants would just love that. I, didn't, I don't think they knew about all of these, but the more you talk about it, describe it in this way, the giants would just love it. Um, uh, I just want to add that Sam Harris, no friend of religion, he, <laughs> he, he said in one talk that there is one real religion of peace and that is Jainism and then you're saying <laughs> you're joking you're saying that the more fanatic they become the less you have to worry about them because they'll become more and more non-violent <laughs> uh, so yeah so that's Jainism all right let's move on to the next verse so if this is a problem it's confusion created by different philosophies so what do we do and isn't Advaita itself one adding to the confusion one more philosophy added to the mix um, one second. Let me move on to the 82nd, 84th verse. Kotiyaschatasraetastu graheryasam sadabrita bhagavanabhiras prishto yena drishta sasarvadrik. Translation. These are four alternative theories. Uh, through a passion for which the Lord remains ever hidden, he who sees the Lord as untouched by these is omniscient. Okay, let's parse this. First of all, four alternative theories. But if you look at uh, Gaurapada's original term, Koti Chatasra, four alternatives. This is actually literally Nagarjunian language. It, it's not four alternative theories, but the four logical alternatives. This is the, called the Tetralemma. Again, very Nagarjunian. So the four uh, alternatives, by accepting one or the other of these, these philosophers, these wise within quote, uh, quotes, wise people, they remain immersed in philosophical controversy and debate. And the Lord is covered over by these. Bhagavan Abhir uh, is Sada Avritaha. Uh, the, the Lord means Turiya. Your real nature, Turiya, is hidden by this kind of thinking. It doesn't allow you, um, when you have a preconceived idea that I'm looking for something called the Atman beyond body and mind, you don't see what's right here. If you think it's not there at all, then you won't look, you will miss it again, again and again. Um, so, in this way. Um, Three problems with this kind of, of philosophizing. One is that um, it leads to endless controversy, which is not a very spiritual state of things. Um, endless debating, as I said, 
over a thousand years. Now, I, I am glad that happened at one level because that led to an enormous enrichment of Indian philosophy. So, different groups debating each other and they had to sharpen their uh, dialectical tools. Um, the philosophy of language developed, epistemology developed and of course metaphysics developed greatly uh, in order to prove their own positions and they refine their own positions. When you are attacked again and again by op uh, opponents from very, very different perspectives, you have to refine your position. And that's how you see, um, so for example, what they do is in Indian philosophy, something like the Atman or consciousness, they will say you have to define it. First you name it, um, then you define it. Uddesha, Lakshana, Pariksha, this is the sequence of philosophizing, ancient philosophies. Uddesha means you list the principles you are going to talk about. Maybe the Sankhyan wants to talk about Purusha and Prakriti and the five Tattvas and uh, you know Mahat, things like that. That's, that's the list of things you are going to talk about. Next, define each of them. Lakshana means define them. Uh, each term must be defined. There must be no vagueness at all. And once you have defined, Pariksha is examination. Each of those definitions will be subjected to scrutiny by uh, your opponents. And they will try to show it doesn't work. And as your definitions come under attack, you are allowed to refine them. So each definition becomes more and more sophisticated. For example, um, consciousness. What is the self-luminous nature of consciousness? Literally, it's called Swaprakasha, self-revealing. Consciousness reveals itself and everything else. How would you define it? So one of the classic texts of Advaita Vedanta is found, um, is written by a, uh, an author called Chitsukhacharya in his book. Tattva Pradipika, one of the toughest texts of Advaita Vedanta, very advanced scholars study it. In that, there is a section, 11 definitions of consciousness. Um, more precisely, Swaprakasha, self-luminosity. 11 definitions of self-luminosity. 10 of them are rejected in favor of the uh, last 11th one. So each of them, each, you start with a simple definition and see why it does not work and then get a more sophisticated definition that way. So anyway, um, but... As you can see, this kind of thing might not be immediately relevant to your project of nirvana or moksha or going beyond suffering. It can only increase your suffering probably. Uh, so that's one problem. Shankaracharya points it out. It's a hothouse of controversy, he says. Uh, this is one problem with this kind of philosophizing. Second is, these are all vevaharika, trans, uh, part of the transactional truth. These are all thoughts in your mind. So, whatever you think about it, whether it's a Nyaya or a Sankhyan or a Buddhist or a Madhyamaka, these are all conceptions in your mind. In contrast to which, what we are talking about, so isn't that a conception in your mind? No, you might even think about it, but it's all pointing back to the one consciousness which is revealing these consciousnesses, uh, these concepts. All these concepts in your mind are revealed by that one consciousness. That consciousness we are talking about. Uh, we are not talking about a particular theory. So here, um, some Advaita teachers I know, they would go so far as to say, so here Gaudapada is saying, Advaita is not a philosophy. Advaita Vedanta is not a philosophy. I would not go so far. First of all, it is 
obviously a philosophy. If you go to philosophy department, they teach it. So, it is a philosophy in that way, in a very uh, common sense way, it is a philosophy. If you take up an Indian philosophy textbook, there will be a chapter, more than one chapter on Advaita Vedanta. So, it is a philosophy. When you ask for a classification of Indian philosophy, they will talk about six systems of philosophy, one of which is Vedanta. So, it is a philosophy. So, it is uh, being too clever by half to say that it is not a philosophy. It is a philosophy. But I agree, it is more than philosophy. More than philosophy, not in the sense of being religion. That is the other end of the spectrum. See, Indian philosophy has a problem. It is charged with being not philosophy, it is religion, it is theology. Um, I remember talking to a group of brilliant Indian one especially, many years ago. And I was saying that, see, isn't it a characteristic of Indian philosophy that it leads to enlightenment, darshana. Darshana means to see the truth. Uh, that it is, the term which is used is soteriological. It is tra self-transformative and uh, uh, manifestation of the potential. And this Indian philosopher said, Swami, just don't go there. We have spent a long time trying to convince philosophers in the Western universities that Indian philosophy is also philosophy. There is a lot of merit in Indian philosophy as philosophy, not just theology. That part is there, but that's, you can dump all of that and still have a lot of very interesting philosophy. Now, if you bring enlightenment and God realization back into it, it will just throw water on our project. You are saying that Bimal Krishna Matilal especially worked very hard and many others he, uh, he mentioned, Dada Krishnan and others of the earlier generation. So, yeah. Now, my point is, it is more than philosophy, but not in the sense of religion. It is more than philosophy uh, in the sense that it is using philosophy to point to something uh, which is be beyond philosophical conceptualization. It is using the intellect, philosophizing to point towards something which is beyond conception. How is it different from other philosophies? So, Nyaya, for example, or Sankhya, it claims to be an accurate map of reality. So, when they say there is a body and a mind and a soul or Atman, they mean it. They, they claim, they seriously believe it and they want to prove that is true. But as you have noticed with, with uh, Gaudapada, almost nothing he says is meant to be an ultimate, ultimately he is not going to hold on to that. He jettisons all of them. They all serve a purpose to refine our attention, draw our attention to something he says is obvious. It's just that we don't see it. We don't see it because of our polluted, desiring, grasping mind. And the philosophers don't see it because of their conceptualizing mind, who come across these four alternatives and things like that. So these all have to be dissolved. For that, Gaudapada uses philosophy. For example, fighting, letting the philosophers fight against each other and cut down each other's systems with the hope that that which the Mandukya Upanishad reveals is so self-evident that once you let go of these conceptual, uh, conceptualization, it will be clear. That one consciousness which illumines the Nayaika's idea of the Atman, the Sankhya's ideas of the, uh, idea of the Purusha to, um, uh, or the uh, Vijnanavadi's idea of a stream of consciousness, all of these are illumined by that one Turiya according to uh, Gaudapada and for him it's not a it's not a not a philosophical construct uh, he he wants us to let go of all philosophical constructs ultimately it's like a scaffolding which has to be let go of the Nayaika or the Sankhyan will not say that will not say that you let go of this scaffolding that is the map of reality according to them this 
is a little a lot similar to a very new and um, um, new way of looking at philosophy in the West. So someone like Wittgenstein, for example, um, thinks of philosophy as therapy. Philosophical problems are due to language or are due to confusions and the job of the philosopher is to dissolve the uh, question, not to solve it, not to solve the problem but to dissolve it, to see, to show, he says, to show the fly uh, out of the way out of the bottle. So the bottle is there and there is one neck and it is open but it has to be shown how to come out of it. So we are trapped in our concepts. And the, the best thing that a philosopher can do is to show that that, that problem is, is an illusion created by our concepts. Something like that. I wouldn't say that, uh, that Wittgenstein and Gaudapada are saying the same thing. Not at all, by a uh, long run. But, uh, yeah. So, what does he say in the 84th verse? The Lord, that means Turiya, consciousness, Abhir Asprishta. It is completely untouched by all these philosophies. What do you mean untouched by these philosophies? Because they are all vrittis. They are all conceptualizations in the mind. Whichever philosophy you take up, they are all revealed by the same Turiya. And that is the Turiya we are pointing towards. Yena Drishta, that sage, that enlightened one, who sees this, this truth, sa sarvadrik, that one becomes omniscient. That one becomes omniscient in the sense that one knows the reality, the Turiya, um, whereas the others are all caught in their philosophical conceptualizations. Okay. Uh, at this point, anybody? Swamiji, Dr. Long is on. Yes. Welcome, uh, welcome, Dr. Long. Is uh, Jeffrey there? Yes, good evening. Good evening, namaste. namaste. We, I just took advantage of your absence to smuggle in Lots of, I'm sure, very superficial stuff about uh, <laughs> Jainism and Jaina philosophy. Um, I was just saying that the Jainas developed uh, a multi-valued logic, uh, which we just began to talk about in the 20th century, I think, with, uh, yes. yeah, with Polish uh, mathematicians, Lukasiewicz and others. But I think more than 2,000 years ago, the Jainas were talking about multi-valued logics. That's right. That's right. It started about 2,000 years ago, and then they really took off with it about 1,500 years ago. And uh, it's a collection of three distinct doctrines that are sort of logically interrelated. Anekantvara, uh, yes. which is the doctrine that things are multifaceted, Anekant. Yes. And then Nayavada, uh, which is the, the doctrine of perspectives, that uh, the truth of one's the, the validity of one's perception and the truth of one's claims uh, is dependent upon the perspective from which they're made. Yes. Uh, and then Syadvada, which is sort of the most kind of distinctive aspect, uh, that's really the multi-valued logic where um, depending upon the perspective from which a claim is made, it can be true, it can be false, it can be both true and false, it can be neither true nor false. And then there are three non-redundant combinations of those four, making for seven possible truth values. I was talking about that avyaktab or avyaktavyam, I think. Uh, what yes, what, what cannot be? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Oh. And uh, they were um, they got in trouble with both uh, Vedantins and the Buddhists yes. because uh, uh, they were trying to bring together things which, according to Vedanta and, and Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism, are are contradictory. Yes. 
but they were saying that's the nature of our experience and you know, trying to work from that sort of metaphysical realist perspective. Right. Thank you. We were just discussing that. Anybody want to come in here? Shashank? Has anybody got a question or a comment? Yes. So there are actually three questions on the chat. One, Let me take a look. One, one is from Shweta Chatterjee. Yeah. YouTube video at Harvard University presentation. You mentioned your Himalayan experience and said you'd later say more about that in another video. I'd like to hear more about this. Um, yes. One thing related to this is, it's not relevant directly right now, but uh, some people have been asking me to uh, give um, like a presentation on what happened at Harvard. What did you do and what was your experience and share the experience. And what better than having a, a captive audience to show your vacation slides to, you know, that's the cliched way of boring people. <laughs> so I've decided to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll announce the date um, once we finish the Mandukya. We will have something about, not about the Himalayan experience, but about uh, the uh, Harvard experience. Then, uh, then there's one more from... Yes, Shravani. Bit confused why Ajata was associated with deep sleep paradigm. Deep sleep to differentiate it, doesn't the creation exist in seed form and potentially give birth again. So, Right, so only one aspect, it's an example. Uh, so, uh, the waking world is uh, taken as an example or a paradigm for Srishti Drishti and uh, the dream experience is taken as a paradigm for Drishti Srishti and the deep sleep as a paradigm for Ajatavada. In deep sleep, notice that there is no experienced duality. So, subject-object seems to be merged. We talk about coming out of deep sleep and uh, reflecting back upon it and saying that I was in uh, peace and I enjoyed happiness, but that's only after coming out. When you are in there, you do not even have the experience, I am sleeping or I am experiencing deep sleep. If you do, then you are not in deep sleep. So, uh, so that's that paradigm for Ajatavada. There is no separate world which is experienced there. Remember, in the, wake, in the waking world, the entire world is experienced and in Srishti Rishti you would realize that this is all a projection of Maya from Ishwara and all of that. In Srishti Rishti uh, and in Drishti Srishti it will be like the dreams where all of this is an appearance in the consciousness which you are. Like a dream is an appearance in the dreamer's mind. And in Ajatavada it's just Brahman. There is no world at all. What are you talking about when you talk about the world? So that, in that way. Um, from Abhijit. Yes. Um, what is the defect which both claim the others have? Um, where is this? Abhijit, would you want to come in at this point? Abhijit? Yes. Pranam Maharaj. Namaste. Yeah. Uh, he was just, uh, I heard the question was about uh, Shunyavadins and the Advaitins. They were saying that at the end, Shankarajya says that there is only little bit of uh, uh, the Buddhists are only a little bit wrong. Yeah. You said that even they said that the Advaitins are only a little bit wrong. We'll come to that verse later on, where um, Gaurapada says, Naitad Buddhena Bhashitam. This is not. This was not taught by the Buddha. It's at the very end of the uh, fourth chapter of Mandukya Karika. And why would you say that if there is? Uh, I would suddenly say it wasn't said by X Y Z, unless you are riffing off X Y Z for your or your. Is there some plagiarism going on or something like that? Um, 
so Shankaracharya takes it seriously enough to comment and he says there is actually very little difference between what Gaurapada is saying and some of the Buddhists. So the difference is very small. And the Buddhists also say that about Advaita Vedanta, some Buddhists. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting that I came across a very, one of the earliest mentions of Buddhism um, in an early text of one of Nagarjuna's followers, Bhava Viveka, uh, who figures very prominently as a villain in later Tibetan uh, Buddhist philosophy as the source of the uh, Swatantrika heresy sort of let's say. But I didn't know that he had written about Vedanta. And this is long before Gaudapada. So I came across a, a, a research monograph in the Widener Library in, uh, at, at Harvard, where Bhava Viveka, or he's also known as Bhava Viveka, uh, he comments on one chapter on Sankhya, refuting Sankhya from a, from a Shunyavadi perspective, Madhyamaka perspective, and one chapter on Vedanta, refuting Vedanta. Now, when I read the Vedanta chapter with eagerness, I found he refutes Vedanta as being a completely incoherent philosophy. Um, and Vedanta at that time was apparently a minor player. The big players were Nyaya and uh, uh, Mimamsa and Sankhya among the Hindus. If you read that account of Vedanta, which he refutes, uh, Bhava Viveka, if you took Vedanta just as some of the Upanishads, Purusha Suktam, he quotes from Purusha Suktam, Mahanarayana Upanishad, and that's it. All of this is Brahman. But without Maya, without Vivartavada, without the, um, you know, all of Adhyasa, uh, without Shankara's Adhyasa Bhashyam, if you leave those out and try to say uh, what the Upanishad says, like a spider projected uh, its webs uh, in the same way Brahman has projected the universe, no, it's very easy to cut it down logically. How can that unchanging Brahman be this changing universe? So in this way, he dismisses it. 700 years down the line, Shantarakshita Kamala Sheila uh, in the, uh, the Nalanda school, the last of the, maybe the last of the great Buddhist uh, philosophers, they say there is very little difference between Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. And by that time, the Advaita Vedanta they are dealing with has got the theory of Maya, has got uh, a whole wide range of epistemology, uh, logic, uh, it has got Vivarta, the apparent transformation theory. Uh, it has got the multiple, most importantly, multiple layers of truth, the Paramarthic, Vyavaharika. And about all of them, not all, but almost all of them were imports from the Buddhists themselves. And now, 700 years later, when the Buddhist philosophers are looking back at Advaita Vedanta, they're saying they're almost like us. So this is the transformation, 700 years. I mean, literally, if you want to an oversimplified way of putting them together, if the Buddhists agree that the consciousness which they're talking about are not flashes of consciousness, but just consciousness, we have no problem. And the Buddhists would say, you are saying that consciousness is the only reality. Just admit it that the consciousness is a stream of flashes, um, every moment arising and disappearing. Then you are the same as what we are saying. But that, that's where it gets stuck. We want it that there's, there's no change. Gaudapada is absolutely clear about that. And the Buddhists say that that which does not change is not real actually. There's a whole bit of logic behind that. Anyway, so this is what's going on.
And there's one from Peter Dawkins about Ajatavada. Yes, let me just see. Is Ajatavada exclusive to Advaita Vedanta? Um, yeah, uh, Parmenides is very Vedantic actually. So, Ajatavada as a term is applied to Gaurapada's way of presenting Advaita Vedanta. But um, I guess you can come across similar thinking in s some Greek philosophers. Um, the Neoplatonists, for example. Um, there is a book, Thomas McKeevely, I think, uh, about Greek philosophy and uh, Indian thought, where he takes up this issue. Not the Ajatavada particularly, but the Vedanta and the similarities with some Greek philosophers. And that's all I'll say at this moment. All right, moving on. 85. Prapya sarva jnatam kritsnam brahmanyam padamadvayam anapannadimadhyantam kimatah paramihate does one make any effort after having attained omniscience in its fullness and having reached the non-dual state of Brahmanud, which has no beginning, middle and end. So it's a beautiful verse. This verse and the next one, Gaurapada is telling us, so what happens when you overcome our natural dualistic tendencies to see the world as real, the presented world as real and then get involved in samsara? Or the philosopher's tendencies to set up multiple systems of philosophy and then obscure the reality of the Turiya. What happens if you can overcome all of these and become enlightened? And then what is the result? What do you get after enlightenment? So what do you get? Prapya sarvagyatam, kritsnam. You get complete omniscience. Now what does this omniscience mean? In Advaita Vedanta, there's an important point. Normally when you talk about omniscience in uh, religion, it means God. So God knows everything. Everything in the sense of an encyclopedia, let's say. Everything, God has got everything stored up in his servers and so all data is there. Um, he has hacked into every network and everything. So God knows everything. But this is not the omniscience that Gaurapada is talking about. Gaurapada when he says, or Advaita Vedanta also, when he says the enlightened person, the Jivan Mukta, is Sarvagya, all-knowing. The way it is to be understood is Sarva and Gya. Um, sarva means all. So it is the Turiya which is the all. When the enlightened one realizes I am the Turiya, the enlightened one knows that the entirety of the universe is not different from himself as the Turiya. Sarva means here all, all in the sense of the waking universe, Jagrat Prapancha, the dream universe, um, the, the Swapna Prapancha, and the deep sleep, the potential universe in the deep sleep, the uh, Karana Prapancha of uh, Sushupti. This is all. And all of this is an appearance in the Turiya. It's not different from the Turiya. When, you, when the wave knows itself as water, it knows that I as water am all the waves. Indeed, I am the entire ocean. So in that sense, the enlightened one says, I am the all, as Brahman, as Turiya. Gya, Gya means consciousness. As consciousness, I am the all. So I am pure consciousness, which is the reality of all of this. Now, it is not the omniscience of, of an encyclopedia or of the internet. 
not in that sense not omniscience knowing everything in detail so the enlightened person if um, you say that he become omniscient so does that enlightened person know all the languages of the world you know english and french and german and swahili and french uh, and japanese and chinese no that person would have to learn by just like everybody else if that person wants to know language and art and science and all of that um maybe that person because of being a sadhaka might have extraordinary powers of concentration like yogis do like say swami vivekananda does and uh, they might learn much better than us might retain much more but still it's not by virtue of being enlightened that you become a uh, you would still have to work through it i was reading somewhere that elon musk as a kid he read the encyclopedia britannica twice so that was an extraordinary kid they right there but that's the other kind of Uh, omniscience knowing things in detail now i must say here so this is what this is the vedantic position advaitic position but um i can see jeffrey looking carefully at her <laughs> but um if you go to uh, the jaina idea of kevala gyana uh, or the buddhistic idea of the omniscience of the buddha the perfected one they would say both you know the reality whatever is the reality in your system the enlightened one knows that but somebody of the level of the jina or the buddha would also be omniscient in the other sense knowing everything in detail knowing everything encyclopedically would that be right um, jeffrey you have to unmute yourself yeah yeah okay very good uh yes in fact uh, uh i know particularly in the jain case uh there is a strong insistence on literal omniscience yes for the enlightened being and uh with some of the other indian schools of philosophy would ridicule this by posing the rhetorical question who needs to know how many mosquitoes there are in the world yes <laughs> <laughs> but mahavira knows that according right, to right. Uh, Jainism. I I wasn't aware that that claim was there in Buddhism as well. My understanding was always that from a Buddhist point of view to be sarvagya was to know what other beings need to be taught in order to become awakened. And they they have that perfect skill. Uh but there may be more as well, but uh, that's what I had heard. Right. Um I was I came across this as a debate in Tibetan Buddhism in uh, in Professor Garfield's uh, J Garfield's class on Indo-Tibetan Madhyamaka. So where they had the debate about uh, the way the Buddha's awareness is presented it seems that the Buddha knows everything that's going on in all the worlds and one of those things is of course the perfect skill of the bodhisattva in liberating other beings but in detail the Buddha knows everything that's going on in all the worlds and in some descriptions it's the buddha who knows absolutely nothing because the worlds are false that kind of knowing is a false knowledge and the buddha is free of that so they had a term for that uh, professor garfield was saying we call it uh, brain stem buddha <laughs> like you have, you have been reduced to a, a comatose state and only the brain, like a vegetative state so is is buddha, becoming a buddha like being reduced to your brain stem uh, hopefully not that debate goes on It's an interesting solution I think a very reasonable solution which Gaudapada or Advaita Vedanta offers what you become enlightened about is you know you are Turiya and Turiya is the reality of all things and you know that reality now the variations of that reality created by maya are infinite and you don't know them but whatever they are they are 
you know that it is the Turiya, that it is Brahman. So, um, to put it very simply, knowing everything in Advaita Vedanta means you know that everything is Brahman. Not just by reading it, you actually feel it, you know that. For example, my dream about, I shared with you a couple of classes ago, about being in Africa and being chased by animals and all of that. Now I know, though I don't know how many kinds of animals were there, what kind of plants were there, what the weather situation was, what the temperature was, but I know all of that was my mind. And I know that for a fact, because it was a dream. In the same way, the enlightened one knows everything that you can, anybody has ever experienced or can possibly experience in this universe is nothing other than consciousness, which you are, uh, enlightened being is. Okay, um, moving on. Yes. Um, what is the next thing that you get? Sarvagyata, knowing everything in this particular sense. Uh, Brahmanyam, the true state of a Brahminhood. So the Shankaracharya quotes here, who is a true Brahmin? It's not the one who has a sacred threat or belongs to a Brahmin family as one of the upper castes in India, uh, in a Hindu society. No, it is the one who realizes I am Brahman, one who becomes enlightened. So the Upanishads say that the one who before dying realizes I am Brahman, who gets enlightenment before death, that one is a true Brahmin. And the others, so-called Brahmins who may have the sacred thread and be initiated into uh, Brahminhood, they are just uh, the pseudo Brahmins, let's say. And the real Brahmin is the enlightened one. So, this is the you get the fulfillment of Brahminhood. Whoever you are, you are now fit to be called a real Brahmin. What else do you get? Padamadvayam. You become non dual. Uh, everything, there's nothing in this universe which is apart from you, and that's qualified by the next verse Anapanna Adi Madhyantam which is not touched by beginning, adi, madhya means middle, antam means end. Basically, it, you become free of all limitations. What is beginning, middle and end? It's only an existence in time, that you have a beginning in time. There was a time when this body was not there, and then it was born. And Gaudapada has exhausted the last, oh, so many verses showing that there is no birth of the self, of consciousness. So there is no birth. There is no middle existence as, you know, as a, ch as a child or a young person or a middle-aged person or an aging person. That's the body. No, there's no middle existence like that. And there's no end also in time, like death or even a cosmic dissolution. None of them uh, pertain to you because you transcend time. Time appears in consciousness. Consciousness is not in time. Time is in consciousness, according to Gaurapada. So, um, so, so you are non-dual. You are not limited by time, therefore you are eternal in that sense. Then you are not limited by space. That means you, you are not located in space. Space appears in you. If I ask you the plains of Africa which I saw in my dreams, so was I actually in the plains of Africa as I experienced it? Or would it be more true to say that plains of Africa which you experienced was in you, in your mind? It would be absolutely true to say it was the whole thing was in my mind. So you are lo not located in space, space is located in you in a very real sense. And then last is all objects, every being in this universe, just like the, the 
uh, lion and the body I saw myself in, in the dream and the tree and the sky and the plains of Africa, none of them were a second reality apart from the mind of the dreaming Sarva Priyananda. They were not a second reality. The only non-dual reality was the dreamer Sarva Priyananda there. Similarly, the only reality here is the consciousness which you are, which appears as endless um, types of beings and creatures and events and activities, places and objects, stars and planets and protons and neutrons. Okay, that is Advayam. So this is what you gain, that limitlessness, non-duality. And the last one is, you gain Kimataf Param Ihate, having realized your infinitude, what else remains? You attain Purnatvam, completion, fulfillment. There's nothing remaining for you to gain or attain in this world. Somebody said that's a very boring state. No, you are fulfilled. Now, whatever you do in this world, and believe me, you will be probably be more active than anybody else. Of course, there's no rule. An enlightened person might be very dynamic and active or may not, may be completely withdrawn. Um, like Ramana Maharshi or somebody sitting in a cave. But that um, enlightened being has nothing more to attain for himself or herself. Knowing oneself to be the limitless consciousness, what else is there to attain? The Panchadashi says, having done what is to be done, Krita Kritya, having known what is to be known, Gyatabhya Gyatataya, having known what is to be known, having gained what is to be gained, Praptavya Praptataya. Imagine the joy and fulfillment of this one, this enlightened one. So the absolute rest and the serenity and the fulfillment of this one, even if you are engaged in tremendous action for the welfare of others, or completely unconcerned, in every case you are infinite and fulfilled. So this is a beautiful verse which shows you what do you gain out of all of this. Um, just one more verse, 86. Now I'll go back to the questions and we'll wrap it up. This continues the theme. 86 continues the theme of what do you get? Vipranam vinayohesha shama prakrita uchyate dama prakriti dan tattvad evam vidwan shamang brajet. A very beautiful verse. This is the modest, modesty of the Brahmanas. This is called their natural tranquility and this is their natural self-restraint resulting from spontaneous poise. Having known thus, one gets established in tranquility. Vipra means usually a Brahmin, but it means a wise person here, the one who has realized. Um, so all the qualities which you would associate with a Jivan Mukta or um, an enlightened being, all of them come naturally to you. Before this, when you are spiritual seekers, you are struggling to get these. Why are you struggling to get this? To be a good person, to be a yogi, uh, to meditate well. We know that we have to be moral and ethical, uh, struggling to be saints. So make believe saints. But, and that's natural. Uh, the spiritual struggle is absolutely necessary. And that's hard work. But that comes, all of that comes, and at the highest degree of excellence, effortlessly to an enlightened being. Shankaracharya says in the Gita of Bhashya, when Arjuna asks Krishna, what is the characteristic of an enlightened being? Sita Pragyasya Kabhasha in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Shankaracharya comments there, Kritarthasya yani lakshanani sadhakasya sadhanani yatna sadhyatvat. Those which are the characteristics of a, of a perfected one, 
those are spiritual practices for the rest of us, for, for the spiritual seekers. Because you can attain that by practicing these things. So they are characteristics of the enlightened one. What we see on the path to enlightenment, tell the truth, be self-controlled, be loving, control anger and lust and greed. All of these, which are struggle for everybody else, is naturally found in this, this enlightened one. Vipranam vinayo hiyesha. This is their excellence. Vinayo means humility. One thing you see uh, among spiritually advanced people, I don't know if they are enlightened or not, but definitely highly spiritual people I've seen in my life and many of you have seen. They are, they are genuinely humble people. There's a genuine humility to them, not a practiced humility. It's just, uh, they don't see themselves as special and we all, the rest of us, we see, see them as most special people in the world and they don't see themselves as special at all. Um, people make a mistake about it, you know. Uh, I met a, uh, this a monk who is a writer and I would say has certain ideas. You're saying, I'm going to write a book about this enlightened person. Nobody knows he's enlightened. He's enlightened uh, and he moves about just like a fool among everybody else. But inside he has uh, contempt for them. I said, whatever that is, that's not enlightenment. <laughs> that might be megalomania or whatever it is. But enlightened person never has. It's impossible for them to have contempt. You, the, all those you see, they are non-different from you. According to Gaurapada, they are you. They are the highest reality shining forth in all these ways. How can you have contempt for anybody? The enlightened being is one characteristic they have is that they see the same divinity everywhere and have contempt for none. Not even their critics and their enemies, people who misunderstand them or vilify them. Never. It's impossible. And there is genuine humility. They really don't see themselves as different. Swami Ranganathanandaji, who was the 13th president of the order, uh, <laughs> a funny incident I remember. He was um, very Vedantic, uh, a very uh, a manly person. Uh, I remember once in Shivaratri, in Belurmat, the whole night puja is there, and four times you offer water on the Shivalinga. And uh, there's always a rush among the monks, there are lines of the monks who to go and offer water in the Shivalinga. So we stood and generally we will let the senior or old elder monks go first. Then I found somebody standing behind me. I was a young monk or a brahmachari at that time, a novice. Um, brahmachari in fact, I think. Um, and I looked back and I saw Swami Ranganathanji who was the vice president of the order standing in queue like everybody else. And we all wanted him to go ahead, but of course he wouldn't. Uh, I remember when he first became the president of the order, uh, when he, the first day when all the monks in Belurmat are going to go and offer pranams to him. So we are all in queue and the president, newly installed president of the order, Swami Ranganathanji is the 13th president of the Ramakrishna order. So we all go forward and it's like having a new Pope or Dalai Lama, you know. So we all bow down and he's asking, why have they all come? And somebody said to him, Swami, you are now the president of the order and they have come to bow down to you. And he said, there are so many monks, let them go and bow down to the other monks. Why just to me? <laughs> and he meant it. He was just, he, I remember, I'll never forget that. The first day after everybody had finished bowing down and because I was a junior brahmacharya, I was at the end of the queue. So I was leaving the room and it was over. Hundreds of monks had passed through and Swami Ranganathanji was sitting there. 
And because it was almost over and I was one of the last ones to walk out of the room, the sevaks, the attendant monks, they had gotten up and they were going out of the room. The only person left in the room was Swami Ranganathananda. And I saw, you know what he did? He got up after having received the uh, you know, salutations of hundreds of monks and devotees and all. He got up, went to the switchboard and one by one started switching off the fan and the light. <laughs> and then the, uh, the attendants rushed back and Swami, we'll do it for you. And uh, Swami said, no, this is important. It should not be wasted. Electricity should not be wasted. And from that day onwards, till his last day as the president, I would see just as the pranams ended, one of the sevaks would rush forward and start switching up the light and fan before he could get to it. Yeah. So humility. Such is the natural humility of the enlightened one. Sri Ramakrishna was mistaken for a gardener. Uh, somebody came to visit Sri Ramakrishna and asked the gardener, where is the Paramahamsa? And he pointed it out, it's there. And when he went to the room, he saw Sri Ramakrishna sitting there. <laughs> so he's so uh, humble and he, uh, they wouldn't correct you. They would think it's perfectly natural. This is the natural humility of the enlightened one. Shama Prakrita Uchyate. Shama is uh, mental poise or inner tranquility. Dhamma is external control. So both external control and inner tranquility, inner coolness, and that comes naturally to the enlightened one. It's not a practiced calmness. Um, once Swami Turiyanandaji was suffering very much from old age diseases, and somebody asked him, Swami, is it very painful? Are you suffering a lot? He said, it's just the body. And in Bengali, I'll translate. In Bengali, he said, Bhetorta thakur borof kore diyechen. Uh, Sri Ram, by the grace of Sri Ramakrishna, the inside is all ice. It's as cool as that. I'm completely unaffected by the storms raging at the level of the body. The body, aging, disease, weakness, problems are there. Uh, Swami Shivananda, he is asked, he suffered a lot from asthma. The whole night he couldn't sleep. He was the president of the order at that time, the second president. Next morning, the Swamis and the Brahmacharis came to bow down to him. Devotees came and somebody asked him, uh, Swami, are you all right? And Shivananda with a smile, he said, oh, I'm perfectly fine. And then they said, but we heard you couldn't sleep last night, you had asthma. Then Shivanji looked and said, oh, you mean the body? Oh, it's not good at all. It's in a very bad shape. <laughs> so, as if he's talking about something. Oh, you mean, oh, sorry. It's not at all good. It's not doing well at all. So that is the inner coolness. And the external control also. Uh, control of greed and uh, anger and all of that, which we have to practice as spiritual seekers. It's absolutely natural for the enlightened person. Uh, why is it natural? I'll end with this. Prakriti dantatvad. The very nature of the Turiya is peace, tranquility. Pure consciousness, just this radiance, unchanging radiance. Uh, this is what you are. You know this fully. You are immersed in it. The mind and the senses... The knowledge of this is, this is clear in the mind that I am that, that ever-present, unmistakable radiance shining through every experience, every thought, every feeling, every person in the world, I am that. And this has a cooling effect on the mind and the senses. So the, the control of the senses, control of our reaction to troubling events in the world is uh, much easier I mean, for, the, for an enlightened person. They don't have to struggle with it like we do. 
and he ends with Vidwan, the one who knows this, I am Brahman Aturyam, Evam Shamam Vrajet. This is the tranquility of the enlightened one. A very beautiful verse. And those of us who have the, had the blessings of seeing enlightened persons or spiritually very advanced people in our lives, you know how this matches their lives. You can see it in their lives. All right. Any questions? There is a question from Babu. Yes. Would you like to ask? Babu, are you there? Muting. Yes. Uh, hi, Swamiji. Hello. At the end of the lecture, my head is churning, so I like to I like to see if I can do this correctly. I uh, read one of the Western constructs of consciousness. He he likened the three states of consciousness we refer to sleep, uh, dream, and uh, waking as gates of uh, consciousness. Would you comment on that? And parallelly, in that model, where does the three of faith? And also, as I begin to think, as I'm thinking about this, how did this all come about? Somebody would sit down and say, look, I'm sleeping, I don't know anything, I'm dreaming, I know something, I'm awake, and all this world is there. So there must be Maybe this is just a projection of my consciousness. Is that all the basis for this entire philosophy? How did this come about? How did what is the genesis of this idea? Genesis of what? The idea itself or how did this world come about? What are you asking? Genesis of the idea that there should be another state of consciousness that's so deep and underlying to all of this. Yeah, as we have discussed many times over the last um, few chapters, uh, the Turiya is not another state of consciousness. We have, we have studied this again and again. Yes. Turiya is consciousness and the states are waking, dreaming and deep sleep. States of what? Waking, dreaming and deep sleep are not states of consciousness. They are states of the mind. It is the mind which wakes and interacts with, with the world through sense organs. That's the very definition of waking. It's the mind which falls up, uh, asleep and generates dreams within itself. And it's the mind which goes to sleep and there are no dreams, no waking experiences. That's deep sleep. So these are states of the mind. It's the mind which wakes up again to the waking state. And this entire thing is illumined. That awareness which shines upon all of it. That is the Turiya. It is in and through all these states. So he was asking, how did this idea come about? The yes. Rishis who discovered it, they will say, if you ask Gaudapada, he will refer you back to the... Uh, Mandukya Upanishad, we know this because the Mandukya tells us and points it out to us and then we see yes, so it is. How do we know it? Because Gaurapada and Shankara and all have transmitted this idea. So Anadi Guru Parampara and they will say trace it back to Narayana. Yeah. So it is experiential and subjective essentially. It is definitely experiential and then the whole thing is set in the form of philosophy through reason and supporting you know, uh, logic and all of that. Yeah, and you have to see it for yourself in order to be free of samsara. It's just not enough. So that's why Gaurapada is pointing out it's not just a philosophy. So you can study it as a philosophy, as which, we, which it's done in textbooks and in classes. But that's not the point of it. The point of it is to see what is being pointed out by Gaurapada and see this Turiya as I the Turiya. Then, it, then the magic happens. What we are reading now, just now these last two verses, the results of it. That will come only when you see it as uh, I am Turiya. 
Um, questions? Swamiji, there's a question from Rodrigo on yes. the chat. Let me see. Um, Rodrigo, does the enlightened one have access to para, pashyanti, vaikarin, madhyama while accessing the truth? Um, this is something which I guess some, someone like Bhatri Hari would talk about or in Kashmiri Shaivism you talk about it. Not something that Advaita Vedanta would necessarily uh, use this structure. Access to para, the para is the enlightened one. It's like asking, does the enlightened one have access to Brahman? The enlightened one is Brahman. Not, you're not something apart from Brahman that you have access to it. Now you've got the password for Brahman or something like that. No, you are that. It's like asking, um, does the pot which knows itself as clay, an example, suppose the pot knows its reality as clay. Now does it have access to clay? It is clay. It is the reality of it. Yes. Yes. So we have gone out of time. Just will I'll take up one or two comments, but those who have to leave, you should uh, you should go ahead right now. Yes, yes uh, uh, Swamiji, my my question is this: Enlightenment seems digital in its behavior, in that you are either enlightened or you're not. And if you're not, then Brahman and Maya and everything remains a concept, hmm. uh, a concept based on first-hand accounts, but by very few people. Hmm. Autopada, Vivekananda, etc. There aren't that many Jivan Muktis walking around. But my question is, can you get a glimpse of your true state occasionally to sort of encourage you on the path to to indicate progress that you're making? Or 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 is it is it flat and then is it zero and one? Or I mean mm. if you're climbing Everest, mm. for example, mm. you can occasionally get a view of the peak. Yes. And you know you're moving in the right direction. The answer to your question is, first of all, straight answer is yes. Occasionally, we do get a glimpse. Remember, the glimpse is not enlightenment. Some people make the mistake. They do get a flash. And for them, the, this whole thing about God or the self or whatever, the, the Buddha nature, it becomes a reality for them. That it, yeah, it's, it's uh, not a concept. I saw it. It's there. But if that happens, that's just on the way. It's enough to encourage you and to confirm that something like this is possible. Even after this, doubts are possible. Slipping away is possible. Not attaining is possible. Lack of stability in that attainment is possible. All of these things are possible after that. But what Gaudapada is saying is that it's not a concept. It may seem like that to you, but the claim is again and again it's being made is if you talk about Nirvana, if you talk about Vaikuntha, say something like Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu or the heaven uh, which you mentioned in scriptures of religions, that's a concept. That's something you have to have believed because you have no access to it right now. And then you can say that uh, books tell me so. Another example would be the mystical experiences. Sri Ramakrishna sees Kali, Christian mystics have visions of the Mother Mary or Jesus or um, so um, multiple mystical experiences are found in the mystical literatures of the world. There you can say some people have experienced it, I have not, um, so I only have to go by their word. But Gaudapada, what Gaudapada is presenting here is not like that. What is it that you have not experienced? Have you not experienced waking? You have to say, no, I have experienced. Dreaming, yes, I have experienced. 
Deep sleep, yes, I have experienced. Gaudapada says, that's enough. You don't need any more experience. Then what do I need? Now you need to reflect on this experience of waking, dreaming, deep sleep. And how do you reflect? This is, way, this is the way I'm going to show you. In fact, right now after this uh, saying, what do you get out of it? Then he'll go back to waking, dreaming, deep sleep and Thudia again. He'll repeat one last time uh, the uh, first chapter what we saw. In a couple of verses only. And in a very stripped down, bare bones uh, fashion. Yeah. So the Turiyam is... making a leap from, from the experience of waking, sleeping, dreaming to the experience of Brahman. There is, there is a discontinuity there. Um, not... There is a discontinuity as far as knowledge is concerned. Gaudapada would say there is no discontinuity in reality. It's just that for us it seems like a discontinuity. That uh, here is the world and there is there's supposed to be a paradigm shift. A sudden upside down. Everything is... Um, I mean... Is it a discontinuity from an earth-centered universe to a heliocentric universe? Yes, in the sense of our knowledge, is, it's a huge shift, paradigm shift. But the reality is that. Um, uh, so, it's like asking, um, is, it's like asking how does the pot get access to the clay? How does the wave get access to the water? The only thing is, if the wave, if it could think, if it thinks that it is not water, there is something to be done to be ac given access to water, all you need to do is, is clear up its confusion that it is not water. It should come to see that, yes, I am water. There is nothing other than water. I am water. In the same way, we have a confusion about what Sturiyam is and what we are experiencing and that Gaudapada is trying to clear up. The next, after a couple of verses, Gaurapada will make some stunning, beautiful, poetic verses. He will say, Turiya is always experienced. You are just not uh, acknowledging it. He will say, you are all, not only uh, you are uh, Turiya, you are already enlightened. You are forever enlightened, he will say. <laughs> uh, Doesn't feel like it. But yeah, I, I know. <laughs> uh, so, Go, if we had time, we would go through it. What the way the teachers would do, a traditional teacher, you know, at this point he would say, all right, let's stop here. What does it feel like? And he would start with your experience. He would take up whatever you say, your subject, object, and investigate that and try to show you what is it that you're experiencing. And hopefully that way we come across the reality. Good. We'll do it sometime. <laughs> Thank you. All right. One more and then we're done. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, Swamiji, is it possible that when we give up this knower and the no relationship, we like sort of enter a unbound darkness as we totally lose the individuality? Like in the path of bhakti, there is a support, but there hmm. you don't feel any support. Yeah, the Atman itself is the support. You yourself are your own support. Yeah, it can feel like a darkness. It can feel like you are entering into a profound depth uh, where even the entire universe is very superficial compared to the depth you are entering. But that's just your own reality. Uh, you are that. And then you will realize you, the Thuriya, are the support of the entire universe. Uh, what is the support of the wave? The water. What is the support of the ocean? The water. Without what, I, what do I mean by that? Without the water, no wave would be possible. Without the water, no ocean would be possible also. 
So you are the water, the consciousness which appears as this person and which appears as God also. Now the person, when you do not know yourself as this consciousness is Turiya, the person takes itself, its personhood as real and God's Godhood as real and then person tries to hold on to God as support. But once the person realizes the Turiya, knows that I am that absolute which appears as this person, the devotee and also as God. Devotee worships God. Somebody put it very beautifully. It is consciousness illumining Consciousness, it is consciousness which appears as mind, knowing consciousness which appears as matter. You are consciousness, you appear as mind, as this person, and you also appear as the universe. And then the person knows the universe, or the person worships God. But underneath you are that consciousness. Yeah. Alright, let's bring it to a close. We are, we are going to meet tomorrow again and continue this discussion. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu